0: Okay, you guys, before I start, I just wanted to let you know that when you send me a DM on Instagram or you respond personally to one of my newsletters that comes out on Thursday, it comes straight to me. I'm the one responding and it completely lights up my day. You have no idea. I love hearing your feedback how you've been inspired by the podcast, what works for you, what doesn't work for you, some of the questions that you have so that I can incorporate that into future podcasts, some of the topics that you're interested. I just love it. I love it when you just pop out from the darkness and you're like, oh, hi, I'm listening. And you become a person to me and we interact. And I love that. So keep them coming. Oh, keep them coming. This week's episode is episode 48 with Anita Darwood Carr. Now, I practiced her last name together with Anita, and I got it right at that point. I don't know if I'm botching it up, so I'm really sorry, Anita. I hate when people do that to my name. Anita is a registered dietitian who practices in the Boston area. So she's an anti-diet dietitian working from, you know, Health at Every Size lens, all that jazz. She's been trained to work with eating disorders and has worked at all levels of care. Right now, she is working as an outpatient nutrition therapist with Marcy Evans, who was actually on the podcast a few weeks ago. And the practice is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's a mouthful. Anyways, Anita has a passion for working with the intersection of eating disorders, and chronic illness, specifically in adolescence. So naturally the conversation today is going to be how to navigate recovery or any form of disordered eating with chronic illness because it's so, so complicated. It's not just like, oh, read the intuitive eating book and like eat when you're hungry and all the foods that you crave, which obviously is (laughs) super boiled down intuitive eating and is not actually accurate. But For somebody whose body responds Differently to specific foods. And, you know, there's so much to navigate with chronic illnesses. There are so many different types. We talk about IBS, we talk about, you know, obviously that's like a big one, but there's so many different types and your body's responding differently to foods. And how do you navigate some form of recovery or working with your journey, healing your relationship with food if you do have any form of chronic illness? So, of course, if you are struggling with a chronic illness, and wanting to heal your relationship with food, this episode is for you. I would say, even if you're not, this is a really interesting conversation that you can probably pick out pieces that do apply to you and helping you understand. You know, it's not a one size fits all the intuitive eating process or the eating disorder recovery process. So, just looking at this from an individualized perspective. And, you know, thinking about how we address specific questions about how to navigate chronic illness and disordered eating recovery, even if you don't struggle with chronic illness, you will definitely get a ton from this episode. So let's just jump right in. I am so excited for this conversation. First of all, thank you so much for joining. And I'm excited to finally do this. We're talking about chronic illness today, which is obviously a very big topic. And especially as it relates to your relationship with food gets so, so tricky. So we can unpack all of that, but maybe let's start off with like, what do we mean when we talk about chronic illness?
1: Yeah. Well, hi everyone. Thanks Rochelle, so much for having me on. I am excited. We finally get to do this and talk about a topic that is really near and dear to my heart and that I'm really passionate about. And so I'm excited to be here and be having this conversation. So yeah, let's dive right in. Chronic illness, I feel like that's, it's almost become a buzzword in the media these days of people just throwing it around, which I think is good and bad, kind of removing the taboo from it, but also like, what exactly is a chronic illness? So the CDC actually defines it as conditions that last one year or more and require ongoing medical attention or limit activities of daily living or both. I kind of like to think about it as a diagnosis or set of symptoms that someone suffers from or deals with on a daily basis and impacts all aspects of their physical, mental, emotional, spiritual well-being. It's something that definitely is impacting their quality of life. And I think it's important to note, too, that a lot of when we refer to chronic illness, we're thinking a lot of the times physically, but even things that do affect people physically, as we know, also have an impact on them mentally, right, kind of depending on what it is and what they're dealing with. And it's often something kind of overlooked a lot of the times in the healthcare system. They kind of, doctors, I feel like, will go and, you know, look at someone's labs and their vitals and whatever testing and symptoms that they're looking at, and then kind of overlook the medical piece of, or the mental piece about how is this affecting this person's mental health with this diagnosis? Chronic illness doesn't discriminate, you know, it can affect people of all ages, genders, races, economic status, abilities, et cetera. I think that's another part too, is a lot of the times young people struggle with chronic illness, but something that doctors don't really recognize or they'll say, oh, you're too young to have that. But like, illness doesn't know age.
0: Or you look fine, like on the outside. Thanks a lot. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Can we just talk about for a second how invalidating that is? Like, oh, you look (laughs) fine. Like, yeah, but I'm dying of all these symptoms on the inside. You can't see it. Comments like that, especially coming from
0: your doctor can just be so harmful. Yeah. What are some examples of chronic illness?
1: Some common ones that we hear a lot about in America are diabetes, arthritis, things like high blood pressure would be considered a chronic illness.
0: Oh, really? Oh, interesting.
1: Things like PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, or endometriosis, those are two that affect women's health. Something like irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia. There is such a long lesson. We would be talking, I think, for like 72 hours straight if I tried to talk about all of that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, these are just a couple of examples. I don't know too much about each one of them, but something, my understanding, we can go into this tangent later, but just something about the IBS is that my understanding is that it just sort of ends up being, okay, we don't have any other answer for you. And so it's IBS, which speaks to the part of the conversation we were saying that the doctors, you know, especially if they don't have more information can be, I don't think intentionally, but invalidating, you know, when somebody has a chronic illness.
1: Yeah. I'd love to, Jump to IBS. So, for those that don't know, IBS stands for Irritable Bowel Syndrome, and IBS isn't to be confused with IBD, Inflammatory Bowel Disease. They're two totally different things, but we're going to be talking oh, about they? I- they
0: are. Oh god,
1: <laughs> I can spend a minute there. So, IBD, which the first two letters are the same as IBS, right? They kind of picked some. A- more similar name if they tried to confuse people even further. But IBD, those conditions are what maybe you've heard of Crohn's or colitis. They are autoimmune conditions that affect the GI tract and very, very different treatment and very different presentation of symptoms than IBS. Not to say someone can't experience both, but how someone treats someone with an inflammatory bowel disease is going to be different than the treatment for irritable bowel syndrome.
0: Yeah. Okay. So maybe let's put it on hold just for a second, because I want to circle back to the piece about chronic illness and then sort of tying it into the food. Because I think even just as a member of society, my association with chronic illness, no matter which one it is, is that it is so deeply connected with one's eating or nutrition. And perhaps that's from media or, I don't know, half knowledge that I've accumulated. But the idea is that one affects the other and then vice versa. So if you have this thing, then if you change what you eat, then you might feel better or it affects which kinds of foods you can eat. And I think, and this is sort of, me. I'll hand the torch over to you because I don't know the intricacies of this. The idea that Some of that is probably very true. And then some of that, perhaps even if someone does experience different symptoms or an alleviation of symptoms, is that more of a placebo effect because it's actually not grounded in science. So the question is, how connected are they?
1: Yeah, no, this is a good question and also a complex question. (laughs) Okay, dive right in. (laughs) So we'll start. So yeah, as you said, there's a lot of factors that if someone is suffering from a chronic illness, how it impacts their nutrition. And there are so many different chronic illnesses, as we've said, and we're not going to obviously talk about all of them today. We're kind of focused on more of the GI system ones. They all, or not all, but most have some sort of nutritional implication, meaning that either someone's on a certain medication and that's limiting, you know, what they can eat because of interactions or they have to increase certain foods because maybe that'll help with some symptoms or they have to eliminate certain foods because it's triggering more symptoms. So it all gets really confusing and complicated. And then let's throw in the pot, all of the messaging we hear from diet culture and the media about eliminate dairy, eliminate sugar, eliminate gluten. It's going to be anti-inflammatory. It's going to cure your bloating or whatever, what have you try this new probiotic, fix my pooping. Like (laughs) I don't know what's out there, but there's so many things. And so, you know, it really comes down to remembering that everyone is so individual. Everyone's case is so individual. There's so many different factors to be considered and to really be hesitant to make any changes without consulting either a medical doctor and dietitian um, to make sure that whatever changes you're interested in or want to explore are scientifically backed up or at least aren't going to do more harm to either you mentally with your relationship with food or physically. Because I know we'll get to this later, but how chronic illness and disordered eating kind of feed into one another is really common too.
0: Yeah, I love that you emphasize how it affects your mental wellness because even if it does wonders for your physical well being, but it sort of tanks where you are emotionally, mentally, there you become obsessed or sort of withdrawn, then that doesn't mean that it's really working.
1: Right. You want something that I really focus on a holistic lens. I can't just focus on just the nutrition part because food is such a mind, body, spirit thing. And so definitely taking that into account of how is this affecting, not only you physically, but you mentally too.
0: Yeah. So what are some specifics? I know that we probably wouldn't be able to ever keep up with whatever's being thrown out and different ads and whatever it is. But I guess we could talk about some of the things that do have some roots in science about, I know that I've heard this FODMAPs, I have no idea what it is. Um, I'm sure I've read it a million times, but it just, it goes in one ear and out the other, but like how eating can affect somebody with a chronic condition and, you know, sort of to emphasize the pieces that are rooted in science.
1: So there are pieces obviously here rooted in science that we do know are true kind of to start at a basic level. I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about is a lot of the times people with, Chronic illness do experience food sensitivities or intolerances kind of that go along with either their autoimmune condition or whatever they're experiencing. So I thought we could do a little quick dive on food allergies, intolerances, and sensitivities, because I feel like that's something that's really hot right now. I actually just Googled food sensitivities and all these like tests came up where they like mail stuff to your house and you like give oh, them really? hair. Yeah, like give them a strand of hair and like nail clippings and they're supposed to determine your food sensitivities.
0: Does that work?
1: I'm not an expert on those things. <laughs> I really don't know the accuracy. What I do know to be accurate are blood tests that can test for food sensitivities. So I can endorse that because I know that's scientifically based. And we've been doing it a really long time. I think these newer things kind of that have evolved even more so since COVID because people have been at home and just wanting to get to the bottom of these things these more convenient ways have appeared. And I don't want to come on here and like shame anyone for trying these things. I think everyone is trying to figure out their body and what's going to work best for them. And if something is bothering them, you know, they want to be able to address it. And I think that's really awesome. But you just want to be smart and make sure you're being mindful of the information that you're taking in, as with anything. So kind of to go back on food intolerance versus food sensitivity. Did you know there's a
0: difference, Rochelle? No, just, mm. (laughs) I know there's a difference between allergies and food sensitivities and that's something that's a big difference. What, What is the difference?
1: Yeah, so food intolerances means you have a difficulty with digesting certain foods. Commonly will cause you a lot of GI distress, like bloating, gas, diarrhea, heartburn. A really common one is lactose intolerance. I'm sure we've all heard of that. Basically, your body is missing an enzyme to digest lactose, which is the sugar found in milk when it's broke down. And then food sensitivity, honestly, when I was researching this one a little bit more deeply than what you know my kind of baseline knowledge is from school, it's kind of poorly understood why they develop in the first place. but what I found interesting is that food sensitivities kind of can change over time. I'm not sure if you've heard of like, oh like, they outgrew their allergy. It's kind of like like a kid. It's kind of the same thing with sensitivity as like it can change over time because a lot of the times we'll have people that are like 40 or 50 come in the office and they're like, Ugh, I feel like gluten isn't sitting right with me, but I've ate it my whole life and I've been fine. So it can be kind of confusing that these things just kind of can develop. And I don't think we're at a point where scientifically we know why that's happening. But a lot of the times you'll hear people with food sensitivities, if they do eat that food, experience things like joint pain, sometimes skin issues like eczema or rash, stomach pain, fatigue, brain fog. And food sensitivity is something that you can get via a blood test, usually from like an allergist or something. You would be working with that person to identify kind of how sensitive you are to this food and if you can have it in smaller amounts. And that doesn't bother you, but maybe really large amounts does. So
0: So just for clarification's sake, in terms of somebody who has an allergy intolerance or uh, sensitivity, are you saying that depending on, again, if they're able to tolerate some of it or not at all, it means that somebody who has any of these would probably be best to stay away from the foods that their body is, quote, sensitive to? Yes.
1: So I want to back it up because I didn't talk about food allergy yet food allergy. It's probably the one we're most all familiar with, right? Like we all know someone with probably a peanut allergy or a shellfish allergy where if they eat it, they will have an anaphylactic reaction, meaning that's just a fancy word for an immune system reaction. So hives, throat closing, Swelling, trouble breathing, really, really serious. So food allergy, absolutely no tolerance policy. Right. You want to be very, very careful for those individuals. And individuals that have a food allergy usually are aware they have a food allergy from a young age. But that is the one that is life-threatening. Definitely want to steer away from those suits if you have a food allergy to something. But as you were saying, like the intolerances and sensitivities, Everyone is so, so different where they might be able to tolerate some of whatever the food item is, but in large amounts, it really bothers them. A common one with this is like we were talking about the lactose intolerance. Like a lot of people can have like hard cheeses, but then if they have ice cream, you know, it sends them straight to the bathroom. A lot of trial and error It's just going to be so different for everyone and how your body responds to that.
0: Yeah. I have a question about either dairy or gluten, really a lot of these sort of quote popular ones to be insensitive to, sensitive or intolerant, that there are a lot of people, especially in the eating disorder treatment community, that sort of like frown on this idea. Like you're not actually gluten intolerant. That's for people with celiac should avoid gluten and everybody else is just sort of making it up and has a reason for restriction. And I guess Like you said, everybody is an individual, but how do we look at somebody is not, does not have celiac. And so their tolerance for gluten is obviously very different, but they do believe that they have a gluten insensitivity. I'm using gluten as an an example. What would you say to that?
1: Yeah, no, this is a really, really good question that comes up a lot. I know, especially when working my former job was at a higher level of care. So when you're looking at feeding, you know, a bunch of people and these questions come up and things like that, personally, my opinion is taking a very individualized approach, kind of, as we said, everyone is so individual and, you know, you can't just look at, they say they can't tolerate gluten, but they don't have a gluten allergy or celiac disease where you do produce an immune response if you have gluten for the sake of our example, But there's so many other factors to consider. For example, some things that are coming to mind, like if this is an adolescent or even an adult, like what does the family eat? Is the whole family gluten-free? Is this normal for them? What's their history with gluten? Do they have some sort of maybe trauma history surrounding foods that are high in carbohydrate? What is the reasoning behind why they are gluten-free? I feel like it's just such a hard thing to be black and white about, which... I know some providers are black and white about it, some aren't. But I find that recovery, you tend to get more buy in from the client with recovery when you really try to understand where this is coming from. Because odds are they didn't just wake up and decide to be gluten free and feel this passionate about it. There's usually another reason why. And for someone who is in the refeeding process and deep in an eating disorder, I really don't care if they're eating gluten-free bread that tastes like cardboard or they want to eat regular bread at that stage. I just want them to eat and get the nutrition. And you can have a fully nutritious diet, being gluten-free and eating gluten-free products as you can with eating gluten. That's kind of work that once they've established regular eating patterns, that I'll kind of dive in and start dipping my toes in with them. Why are we avoiding gluten? What would it be like? And as with anything, I think, too, it's important to validate that if they are saying that gluten causes them pain, to validate that. I feel like a lot of people will just kind of dismiss it and say, oh, well, that's just in your head. You're not actually experiencing that pain. But the pain could be really real for them. And whether it's psychosomatic or genuinely, for whatever reason, when they eat gluten, it does cause pain. Again, those are all things we can kind of filter through as I continue to work with someone, but certainly not going to be kind of at the front lines of me getting this person renourished.
0: Which I think is so tricky because very often you're not going to have somebody come in and say, yeah, I'm gluten-free or dairy-free or vegan or whatever it is because, well, I guess vegan is a different, but I'm all these things because I'm terrified of having gluten. I don't really think anybody's going to say that even if they know that. And so it's really not my place or anybody's place to say, actually, you're gluten-free because you're really afraid of gluten and we're going to introduce it. So if it turns out that that's what is becoming more and more apparent and maybe it is the best course of treatment to slowly introduce some forms of gluten and see what happens, and obviously we can always backtrack, but this is like a trial and error and we have to work together sort of thing
1: definitely and in these situations collaborating with the therapist is always super important and you know if there's a doctor or PA part of the treatment team and if it's an adolescent with family and parents really making sure everyone's on the same page because as i said someone can fully nourish themselves just because we are using gluten-free, I continue to use that example, eating gluten-free or enter whatever diet, dairy-free. Likely someone has disordered eating or an eating disorder and is in my office because they're having issues that are bigger than the gluten-free or bigger than the dairy-free, right? They're not able to nourish themselves for whatever reason, even with those substitutes. It's a complex answer and definitely very individualized. But I feel like I really tend to, in those beginning stages too, depending on where someone is at nourishment-wise, trying to just get food and energy and re-nourish them and then kind of dive into those deeper themes and stuff.
0: Yeah. So just while we're here, if somebody does experience some form of chronic illness, food insensitivity, food intolerance, et cetera, whatever blank you want to fill in. And they have either a history of eating disorder or a disordered relationship with food. Okay, now what? Because there's an element of restriction and I mean, it's just so complicated. What do you do?
1: <laughs> it's like the chicken or the egg, right? It's like, what is causing what? Uh huh. <laughs> it reminds me of one of those memes and it's like, why do I have a headache? Is it because I didn't sleep? Did I sleep too much? Do I need to eat? Do I need to drink? Um, do I need to go and take five days off of work? Like what is causing what? I don't know. And a lot of the times I don't know. That is the truth because it can be hard and nearly impossible because I'm not living in anybody's metabolism or in anybody's brain to know exactly what is causing what. But when I have someone that comes in my office that has some sort of insert chronic illness, GI disorder here, and they're in a place looking to heal their relationship with food. The first thing that I make sure is that they have the right people and supports in place. So again, having a therapist that's knowledgeable in disordered eating, dietitian that's knowledgeable in eating disorders, and GI, or insert chronic illness here, as well as the medical piece, because depending on where someone's at in their recovery process, we wanna make sure that they're medically safe and doing all of those things. I do a lot of education, especially if it's a GI disorder, because GI disorders already give you some funky GI symptoms, and then you put on top of that restriction or purging or binging or whatever the behavior is. And that's putting more stress on an already sensitive system. So I do a lot of education of normal symptoms, normal symptoms that'll happen as we reintroduce food. I think recognizing that these symptoms can kind of overlap for a person and holding space that. This is going to be uncomfortable. This is not a fun process as we're kind of retraining your system how to be properly fueled. Consistency
0: is really key. And let me pause you for a second. That education is sort of just to let them know that this isn't like a medical issue that is a problem. It's almost to be expected that you'll have some sort of discomfort with reintroducing different types of foods or quantities of foods. Almost as like a reassurance before they start the whole thing.
1: Yes, thank you for that, for stopping me. I can just talk and talk, so it's good, Rochelle mm-hmm. to stop me. I just get so passionate and don't know when to shut up. Um, Love it. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of as a uh, what to expect when you're embarking on this journey of re-nourishing yourself or seeking treatment. Honestly, I have not met a single person in my work that I've done with eating disorders who hasn't experienced some sort of GI or metabolic symptom while going through renourishing themselves because your body is relearning. It knows how to do all of these things and our bodies are really smart, but it's relearning how to handle a normal portion of food, how we digest this, how our body is reacting to it. And also our mind, right? There's so many things at play here. And so I think kind of laying it all out on the table so they're not surprised and giving them tools as well to like, if you're having this symptom, try this. Can help them feel better prepared for what they're gonna be doing.
0: Okay, so you prepare them and now what?
1: You're prepared, now what? Really emphasizing consistency, That's really going to help retrain your mind and your body to kind of be expecting food at certain times, as well as really emphasizing what is hard in recovery of getting a variety of foods in, because that's really not only going to give us all of the nutrients we need, but that's really going to help our gut. I'm sure you've heard the term microbiome, and we won't get into that today, but basically Making sure you have a healthy balance of good and bad gut bacteria, which helps with the whole digestive process and also affects your mood and your anxiety because of the brain-gut connection, which means our brain is constantly sending messages to our stomach and vice versa. I also really work with my clients on their anxiety and stress levels because we know how someone who is really anxious and stressed, which is a lot of my clients, or people that are going through this, we know that that's going to make the eating experience a lot more difficult. And anyone who has ever been anxious or stressed before in their life
0: knows- Oh, no it. one. I don't know who you're <laughs> <No>. talking about.
1: <laughs> now I never had a, a little bit of anxiety. Never, ever. <laughs> you know that that can affect your GI system even just as a quote unquote normal person, right? you so feel true. like just a little- Queasy, maybe no appetite. So working with them on ways that they individually like to manage their shifts, whether that's making sure to eat with a friend or a family member or doing some self-care after they eat, making sure they get outside, insert whatever hobby my client likes to do, making sure they're making time for that and making and holding space to make sure they're including that while they're going through this process is really helpful. And my last little piece of information is usually to just be gentle with yourself and know that this isn't going to happen overnight. You didn't develop disordered eating or your eating disorder overnight. It's going to take time and that's frustrating. And also every time that you are choosing to eat, you are making a good nourishing choice. You're getting yourself one step closer.
0: Yeah. So when, if at all, do you sort of, open the discussion to the specific foods that this person has been avoiding and whether or not that should stay like that or challenge it? Yeah. That's a very good question. And
1: again, I'm going to start with, it's going to be super individualized for every yeah. Well, I figured. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. You want a provider that's really, really individualized with these sorts of things. So I usually start with how much that's showing up for this client. If it's something that's constantly on their mind, they've brought it up in that first session, they're asking a lot of questions about it. Are you going to make me eat such and such? Or when do I have to introduce such and such? So kind of how much is it coming up? Because that obviously signals to me that, okay, this is on their mind or thinking about it a lot. Because sometimes people might just be overwhelmed with the fact that they are gonna have to eat say three to four times a day, that they kind of like goes in the back of their mind that's not so much at the forefront because they have so many other anxieties and worries. So I kind of see how much it's showing up for the person and if it's inhibiting them from being able to eat other foods and adequately nourish nourish themselves. Like if someone came in and said, All carbs or starches give me headaches, right? Be like, we would have to address that pretty early on because we're not gonna get very far with renourishing someone if. All of that's a limit right. <laughs> versus someone who's like, I just avoid desserts. That's something I might tackle after a couple sessions. You know, it's not quite at the forefront. So, again, it's really going to vary how much is whatever they're avoiding impacting their treatment and their ability to nourish and feed themselves.
0: Yeah. I wonder if there's ever a situation where somebody sort of says, I don't eat fill in the blank. And maybe there is sort of like a GI reason or something, but there's also an element of that this is a fear food and it terrifies them because, I don't know, they're going to gain weight or something like that. Do you introduce that anyways, just because clearly they're avoiding it for reasons of fear or is that not worth it? And again, it's individualized, but how do you even tackle this in your mind?
1: Yeah, again, it would depend because I've had this happen times, like, so many times, more times than I can count, but with foods, like I don't eat red meat. My family doesn't eat red meat. And then I come to learn after talking to parents that, oh, yeah. no, we, we eat red meat a couple times a week, or I don't eat potatoes. I don't like potatoes in any form, which I have a question for anyone who doesn't like potatoes in any <laughs> form because <laughs> potatoes are delicious. My plug for potatoes. But when it comes to something that someone has been avoiding for a long time, a lot of the times they'll ask. The first question I'll ask is, is this a food you ate prior to your eating disorder?
0: That's a good question.
1: If they say yes, I kind of have my answer in the bag. But if they say, no, not really, there's more digging I'm going to do there. This varies. I work a lot with adolescents. So this is where parents are super helpful to go to because they can tell me if at three years old, they love their child, love to eat corn on the cob. And if now they're saying they don't love corn right? We're going to be a little suspicious of what is the eating disorder voice versus what is actually true. And I try to give my clients as much autonomy as possible. And I want to believe everything they're saying as much as possible, while also in the back of my head, knowing that the eating disorder can be very manipulative and not have their best interests at heart, right? So usually if it's a food that is very anxiety provoking for whatever reason, whether they're scared, they're going to have a visceral somatic reaction. They're mentally just really afraid. I'll a lot of the times do an exposure myself with them where I'll eat the food they'll bring in or whatever and parents will bring in and we'll kind of do it together. So that way they feel really well supportive and also coaching parents or loved ones of how to support this person while they try this food and i think setting little baby goals like maybe we just sit and we look at the hamburger today we just sit and we look at it the next time we touch it and then we take the bite so kind of doing that work on the side while they're doing the work of renourishing themselves with foods they are comfortable with i find to be really helpful because if i said go home and eat your fear food three times a day like that's not gonna set someone up for success right yeah also not gonna happen <laughs> not going to happen either. I'm going to be very disappointed. (laughs) So that's how I kind of handle those situations. But I think just knowing and holding space that this is something that's really, really hard for them. And they're facing literally their biggest fear. A lot of the times my clients will say their biggest fear is even coming to see me and talk about food for 50 minutes. I think sometimes I don't realize the exposure that we even have just by talking with our clients about food and body and these things that are triggering to them.
0: Yeah. Well, obviously I know that there's so much more to this topic and I wish we can talk for hours. We're coming up on time. So before I let you go, where can our listeners find you?
1: Yes. So I am on Instagram at dietitian Anita, and that is kind of my main platform right now that I'm using. You can also email me. I don't know if we can like link that in the notes or we'll link to all of it. Yeah. Perfect. But I'm Anita at marciard.com. And I don't know if I said this in the beginning, but I am in the Boston area and
0: you did not. So now we're saying it.
1: <laughs> so now we're saying it. And yeah, I look forward to connecting with some of you and thank you again so much Rochelle, for having me on and getting to talk about something I'm really passionate about.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.